We've all been there. Good fortune smiles on you, and a mistake in a transaction comes out in your favor. Maybe the cashier gives you back too much change, or the server forgets to add desserts to the bill, or maybe it involves much more than just a few bucks. Do you point out the problem and correct the mistake, or do you pocket the money and carry on? That's what we're talking about today. This is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with attorney Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hey, hi, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a combat vet. Hey, everybody. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you scrutinize your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. Today's show deals with ethics and consumer transactions. So let's start with our first ethical dilemma. You're selling your house, and you receive the closing paperwork, and you review it. You think you see a problem with the numbers, so you call the closing attorney and say to him, it looks like you're overpaying me $3,000. He says he'll look into it, and the next day he calls back and says he's looked at the paperwork, the paralegals looked at it, the accountants looked at it, it's all in order, see you at the closing. So at the closing, everybody signs where they're supposed to sign, Everybody shakes hands all around, and the deal is done. A few days later, the attorney calls you back, and he says, You know, you were right. We did overpay you $3,000. So if you'll bring that check back, we'll re-sign all the paperwork, and we'll cut you a new check. What do you do? Mike, what do you think? I am so glad you put this scenario into our uh, program today, because... You know, this one really gets after something I'm, I'm pretty passionate about, and that's competence, professional competence. I see this in a couple different ways. One is that it was very ethical and very conscientious of the seller to go to the closing attorney before the, before the closing and say, hey, this doesn't look right. I think you're overpaying me. That demonstrates a pretty high ethical standard uh, that that person has. So that individual gave the professionals involved with the deal, who represent, by the way, the, uh, the buyer, you know, the opportunity to go back and check their work. And again, they made a mistake. And so for them to come back three days after the deal closed and say, hey, oh, yeah, you were right. You owe us this money, I think is uh, it's ludicrous. And I, I think it would it would do a couple things. One is it would you know, it would invalidate the ideal idea of a legal process, in this case, a closing. A closing is a pretty formal thing. We've all been through it. Lots of signatures. There's uh, lots of witnesses. And if you were to suddenly say, oops, we made a mistake, we're going to go back and fix it now, um, I think that invalidates the whole idea and the process of closing. So that would have consequences. What if everybody did that? What if every closing out there in the real estate world could be later amended if somebody figured out that eh wasn't quite right. That's not the way the world works. So I don't think this seller has any obligation to go back in, hand over an additional $3,000 and re-sign the documents. Well, let me ask you this, Mike. Had the seller not discovered the error early and reported it, would you feel differently? No, I would not feel differently. Um, because again, you have a you have multiple professionals involved with this deal. It's a formal process. It's one of the most formal things we do legally. 
at least for those of us who are not in the legal profession. And um, again, I think this seller showed a very high ethical standard in in his or her um, conduct by by going in and saying this doesn't look right. So no, I do not think um, I do not think even in that case that it should be reopened. Kelly, why don't you lend us your legal expertise here? Well, Mike kind of covered it. Um, I'm going to take a different tack than Mike. What I would say is, what's the right thing to do here? I mean, who's going to pick up the $3,000? I mean, I think the right thing to do is, you know, to return what is not yours. Um, That's the right and ethical thing to do here. What's the legal thing to do? It's a different question. And a lot of people say there are many things that are legal, but plain wrong. And that may be what's going on um, with this example and what the ultimate outcome will be. Because I think Mike is correct. There is no legal obligation to return the $3,000. But what happens if the $3,000 is not returned? Actually, the settlement agent is probably going to have to pick it up. And pay for it um, because he was not competent and because he didn't pay attention to details prior to the closing. And is that the attorney, the settlement agent? Often it is. It depends on the state. Um, some states do permit settlement agents that are not attorneys. Um, often they work for a title company. Um, but they're the ones that prepare the settlement statement. Um, for years it was called the HUD-1 settlement statement until about 2015. Um, when the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau brought about a closing disclosure statement. Um, It was supposed to simplify things, but it's actually lengthier (laughs) and I think more confusing, um, which often is what happens with more government involvement. Um, But it's the settlement agent that prepares the statement that's using their expertise to do so. And with the HUD settlement statement, they were the ones that actually signed and acknowledged that it was true and accurate. And it, you know, it accounted for the funds which were received and which were going to be dispersed. Um, so it really is their responsibility. The buyer and the seller, if they sign the settlement statement, they're just acknowledging receipt of it. Um, you know, so I would give this person credit Um, with asking questions. I think it's really important to ask questions. Make sure you understand any kind of legal document, in this case a settlement statement that you're signing. Um, But ultimately, the right thing to do is to return the money. Interesting. I raised this question with the closing attorney when I bought my condominium, and he did not hesitate at all. He said she needs to return that money it's not hers. There was no equivocation there at all. One question I had in talking about this scenario through the years, there's been a lot of divergent answers. Some people come down strictly on the deal's done, that's it. Too bad, so sad. A friend of mine who's a, um, who works as the chief financial officer of a company, he said, well, they have errors and emissions insurance to cover things like this. Does that come into play here? It could. If I'm an attorney and I make a mistake like this in a closing, I'm just going to pay for it. I do not want to report it to my insurance company. I do not want to have any issues with malpractice 
and I'm just going to take care of it. Well, I suspect maybe the attorney didn't look over the paperwork again, even after he told the seller he was going to. I think he blew her off. That's my guess. Yeah, and frequently, I used to do closings um, early in my career, and frequently you have a paralegal that really takes care of most everything. But going back to Mike's point of professional competence, you're responsible for those documents. You have to review them carefully and make sure they're correct. You know, let me let me jump back in here because I, I just recently went through a closing. So I, I was reminded of how I'm the least knowledgeable person in the room. You know, the buyer and the seller are, are not the professionals typically. And you have all these people who come in and they bring you stacks and stacks of paper and they tell you where to sign. And of course, you don't have time to read the documents. It's a very formal process. Uh, it's, you know, there are, I, I, I would think in any given closing, there are 30 to 40 signatures and there are probably twice as many initials that you have to, uh, you have to mark on the page. And so I look at it a little differently in terms of returning that $3,000. I mean, it is a process governed by so many rules, so many regulations, and it's supervised by professionals. Now, if you were to take this same situation and let's say I was buying a trailer from my neighbor and somehow the amounts got mixed up and it wasn't what we had agreed on and there were no professionals involved, I would absolutely make good on it and go and if, if I had been overpaid, I would have returned whatever it was I needed to to my neighbor because there wasn't that level of, of professional formality with the process. That's where I was getting at when I said that at that point, if a mistake has been made, it, it lands on the lap of the professionals, and they should make good on whatever the cost was. Well, that, that's certainly a, a valid point, I think, because you are depending on their competence and their knowledge. And it's a little unnerving when you do sign everywhere without having thoroughly read, and you're just counting on them to have done their work. I have to say I kind of fall in line with Kelly, what's the right thing? A poet has written the line, it's 3 a.m. and every bad decision I've ever made in my life is lined up alongside my bed. (laughs) (laughs) My aunt calls it the dark tapes. I would hate, if I didn't return the money, I would hate for that decision to be one of those bad decisions that that lines up alongside my bed at 3 a.m. So I would do what the closing attorney once I'd go back and re-sign everything and I'd give back the money. But you know what? I think I deserve to be paid for my time too. You wasted my time. This That's is two right. sessions. That's right. I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask for some compensation for your wasted time. So I'd suggest we bring that into the uh, negotiation. But ultimately I would return the money. I'm with you, Marna. All right. Okay. Well, we have a difference of opinion here. That's what we like. (laughs) I think, I mean, Mike, you are technically correct. No doubt about it. I mean, that's that's certainly a point of view I've heard in the many times I've posed this dilemma to people is the deal's done. They've signed. It's done. Period. In fact, I was going to tell you, the lady that this happened to, the one who sold their house, she consulted her personal attorney and her personal attorney said, you don't have to go back and re-sign. The deal's done. So she didn't. She took the money and left town. That was her decision. You know, I, at the risk of carrying on a little too long on this one, I just I just want to say that, you know, you, you heard me speak a moment ago about kind of being the, the dumbest guy in the room when I walk into a closing. 
and being confronted with all this stuff that I'm expected to sign and agree to. And of course, I can't read it. And even if I could read it, I wouldn't understand half of it. I mean, that happens to us so much now. Think of all the, the um, when you go to any website, let's say you, you download a new piece of software and you, you sign away your rights at the bottom. I agree to the following conditions. And it's this 18-page document that I, for one, am not going to read. <laughs> Um, because I have better things to do with my life. So we have all this stuff, this sort of background swirling around us, and we as the consumers, we as the, the, the subject of that, of that transaction, we're the least informed, which is a very interesting place to be and, and perhaps not a good one. So I, I see it in that light. I guess I'm trying to stake out my rights as opposed to those of the, the professionals that are rendering services in this case. All right, I'm done. Okay, good enough. Let's leave it there and move on to the second dilemma after this short break. And we're back with the second dilemma of the day related to consumer transactions. This one actually happened to me. I ordered a bunch of clothing from an online retailer, and when the box came, there were also some Christmas presents in there. When the box came, there was a pair of black boots in there, pretty expensive black boots, that I did not order. And they were not on the packing list, and I was not charged for them on the receipt. Well, they happened to be my size, so I tried them on. And they fit perfectly, and they were my style. And there's no record of these boots, and I have them in my possession. So do I keep them, Mike? Oh, me again. All right. Um, (laughs) Well, let's see. So what I think you do is you go back and you contact the retailer, and you tell the retailer if you can get a hold of them and talk to a real person. That's another challenge altogether. We can talk about it on another day. And you say, hey, here's what's happened. I have these boots. Do you want me to return them? And if you do, help me do that. Send somebody to pick them up or, you know, whatever. Make make arrangements through UPS or FedEx or the Postal Service. But it's really on them. I've had something like this happen to me in my life. And I went back to the retailer and said, hey, I got two of the same thing. Do you want the other one back? And they said, ah, No, just keep it. And so that's what I think you do. But you do have an obligation to contact your retailer. You agree, Kelly? Um, I don't. Uh, I'm going to take the legal position here. Um, I agree what Mike said is the right thing to do, yes. I think you could also argue it's your lucky day, Marnie. (laughs) (laughs) You got a great pair of boots that's your size. From the legal perspective, you know, it would not be larceny or stealing to keep the boots. There are elements to larceny, and one of them is basically taking something without that person or a business's consent. And that's not what's happened here. Um, These basically were sent to you. It's obvious that it was with the business's consent. So you could certainly take the position that there's nothing wrong with your retaining the boots. Okay. Well, that surprises me. It surprises me too, Kelly, especially (laughs) after your answer on the house closing. Yes. Are you kidding me? I expected you to come down hard on that one and say, oh, absolutely. You know, they're not yours. Unbelievable. Okay. Okay. That's what makes this interesting. So no, no larceny. Let me tell you what I did. 
Yeah, that's what I'm dying to know. I, I was going to start out by saying that, Marnie. <laughs> I didn't do anything for a few days. I didn't wear the boots out of the house, but I did wear them upstairs on the carpeted area because they were very sharp boots. I never would have bought them myself because they were so expensive. But I finally called the retailer, spoke to somebody, and told them what had happened. I got these boots by mistake, and I was hoping, hoping they would say, oh, you know what, just keep them. It's not worth it for us to ship them back to us. But that is not what they said. They said, we'll email you a shipping label prepaid, and if you could just call the UPS man, he'll pick them up and he'll return them to us. So bye-bye boots. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's no good deed goes unpunished. Oh man! <laughs> yeah. I mean, not only do you have to return them, but you got to go to all this trouble of a label and packing, right? Shipping tape. Yes, <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't my lucky day after all. Lucky would have been, hey, just keep the boots, and thank you for your honesty. <laughs> okay. Any further thoughts on the boot scenario? No, that's that one. I tell you, that's good though. Boy, I was I didn't see that coming, Kelly. Thank no, you. I didn't either. You always surprise me, Kelly. And we will be right back after this short break. All right, we're back with our third and final scenario. This one, Mike is going to set up for us. Mike, you had something interesting happen to you a couple weeks ago. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, well, thank you, Marna. But, you know, this I'm a little hesitant here because this is, this is sort of unfinished business, and it's very personal. All right, so with that introduction, uh, my wife and I were driving to a meeting about two and a half hours from our house. We live in the very northern part of New York State. On our way back from the meeting, we were driving down the road, and we drive through an area which uh, has become increasingly populated by Amish families. And so you see them driving in their horse and buggies. You see them walking by the side of the road. You see them working in the field with horses. It's really, it's quite a thing if you've never seen that before in our country. And so you have this concentration of Amish families, and many of them do crafts, and they have little roadside stands. So we stopped, and um, we ended up buying some maple syrup, and we ended up buying some hand-woven baskets. And everything's a cash transaction, so we handed uh, the, the gentleman, I think, uh, several 20s and a 10, something like that. And he needed to make change, and he didn't have it in his cash drawer. So he went back in the house, and he came, came back out, and he made change. And his name was Henry, and we had a wonderful long chat. And as he handed me the change, I looked at one of the $10 bills he gave me. And in fact, it wasn't a normal $10 bill. It was a gold certificate. And I had a vague idea of what a gold certificate was. And it does look pretty different because although it's shaped and colored like a normal $10 bill, it has a gold stamp on it, a gold medallion on the left side. So there's this splash of color on it that you wouldn't normally see on a $10 bill, any bill. I knew it was very different and I, I didn't make a big deal out of it. He handed it to me and we talked about our families. It was very pleasant. And we got back in the car and we headed home. And so when I got home, I looked at it. I was just stuck in the back of my mind. I said, hey, I better check that out. I looked it up and sure enough, it was a $10 gold certificate, and it was minted in 1928. 
And I looked it up on the internet, and it's worth somewhere between, depending on its condition, $60, $80. Um, and this one was not uncirculated. It wasn't in mint condition, but it's in very good condition. And so I figure it's probably worth $60 or $70. So now, here I am. This gentleman obviously had no idea what it was, had no idea as to its value. I had a vague inkling. I just took it from him because he treated it as, as a $10 bill, and I accepted it as a $10 bill. So what should I now do? That is my own personal, ongoing, ethical dilemma. And I am going to turn this over to Marna and Kelly, and uh, I hope I come out looking at least reasonably ethical once this is said and done. Okay, well, Kelly might have a differing opinion on this, but if it were me, I would take it back to the guy. And I know it's, what'd you say, two hours away? Right. Mm -hmm. That's pretty far. But if you're ever going that direction, I would take it back to him, to Henry, and say, I don't think you knew what you gave me here, but it's not a your basic $10 bill. It's a, it's a gold certificate and it's, it's worth about 60 bucks. Do you want it back and just give me 10 bucks, real 10 bucks back and we'll call it even. And that's what I would do. And that, that would keep the bad decisions away from my bed at 3 (laughs) a.m. Okay. I know it's, I know it's an inconvenience because it is two hours away. Would you make the trip, um, just for that purpose you know because i mean these people live you know they just live in a very different reality um i don't know how much that ten dollars means to him he's got a bunch of kids he's running a farm uh he's tapping maple trees what what's the urgency what do you think marna well let me ask you this if the roles were reversed what would you want to happen if you were the one who unwittingly gave away a something valuable like that yeah, I kind of look at that as that's my personal responsibility. You know, if I didn't know what it was and I know if I didn't know or if I didn't care, that's my personal responsibility. And once I hand it off, um, then it, it's somebody else's. I, I would not sense an obligation for someone to return something to me that I unwittingly gave them, especially in this case where it is legal tender. You know, if it were a painting which was in a garage sale and it were worth $10 million and I let someone take it for five bucks, okay, maybe that's a little different. But this is just, we exchange legal tender all the time. Well, fortunately, I would never experience this dilemma because I would never recognize a $10 gold (laughs) standard bill. (laughs) No, and we're going to post a picture of that on our website for those of you who are interested in what it looks like. Yeah, I mean... Mike sent it, and it is really interesting to see. I encourage everybody to take a look at it. But I honestly would not have known, and I would have just passed it on uh, to the next person. But that's a tough situation. And, you know, I think if you notice it while you're there and you're nearby, you go ahead and take care of it as you described, Marna. But when you're two hours out, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that does complicate it. And, and how much does that cost you to drive? Mm-hmm. It's a four-hour round trip with gas prices in New York State? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, exactly. And exactly. your time has, you know, yeah. time is right. money. It's probably about $25, $30 worth of gas coming and going. And that's the thing with these dilemmas, is they really are thought-provoking, and in some cases, I'm not sure there is a right answer. Any chance you'll be going by his farm stand anytime soon? 
on the uh, way to another no, meeting? No, I don't have any plans to go there anytime soon, although I'm sure at some point in you know the next couple of years I will go that way again. Mm -hmm. um, but Do you have his address? No, but I know exactly where he, where he lives. I mean, and I'll, I would recognize the place. Um, I don't have his address. I don't have a last name. You know, it would be, it would, I think it would be even more foolish to, like, send it by mail in a way which I couldn't guarantee it gets to him. Yeah, I agree. I would not mail it. This is a tricky one. Yeah. What, what are you going to do? I imagine at some point I'll be out there. I'm, I'm not going to do anything with it. I kind of have this very dormant coin collection I inherited from my father. And there are some gold certificates in there, but they're $1 bills. So when I go out there, I'll bring it with me, and I will stop by. He's a charming, lovely man, which is which is in and of itself. That's a whole other discussion, because to have an insight into the world of the Amish is really, really, really neat. And I'll just say, hey, look, you gave this to me. What do you think? You know, I don't think you knew what it was. Do you know what it was? Do you, do you want it back? Do you want me to split the difference with you? And he and I will just have a discussion and figure it out. I think he'll be he'll be quite uh, surprised and charmed by the fact that somebody cared enough to come back and, and uh, talk to him about it. Well, I like that ending. And meanwhile, we'll stay tuned, and you can give us a, an update on it. Oh, geez, so much pressure. If, <laughs> if anything happens with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I showed it to one of my sons who studies economics, and, and he was just like, he just was super excited because these are not, you know, they're just not kicking around out there. And to get one in circulation at this point, I mean, that's now, that thing has been out in circulation for 91 years. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And it's in pretty good condition? Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. So are we, are we going to see you on Antiques Roadshow? Be, being um, one of those people no, who gets the, I, I think this is not the exactly jackpot. Gem. This is sort of a known quantity. Uh, well, that's very interesting. I'm going to be pondering this one for a while longer, I think. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this? I think to sum up the three scenarios from today, I would say two things. Um, and I said this earlier, there are many things that are legal but wrong. And I think that these th three scenarios really bear that out. And, and also, doing what's right is not easy. Right. You know, what I would say as we wrap things up today is I, I would look at all three, and I suppose we could do this every time we talk, but look at them through the lens of universality. So what would happen if everybody in the world, you know, let's go back to the first one. What if every closing in the world was just not to be taken seriously because it could be undone at a future date because the people who put together the deal made a mistake. You know, what would happen if everybody kept merchandise that they didn't ask for? Would that have a negative or would that have a positive effect on our world? I know where I come down on that, but I'll let people think about that. Yeah, I read a book years ago. can't even remember the title of it now, but the thesis of the book was the less that we do what's right, the more laws we need to keep people in line, the more we have to legislate correct moral behavior. A certain amount of shared accountability is really valuable to a society. Being able to count on your fellow citizens doing what's right, although what's strictly legal may be a different path. Yeah, interesting, interesting. That's a great thought, Mark. 
That's all for this episode of Ethics and Etiquette. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we're doing here, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcast. And please visit our website, ethicsandetiquette.com, for show notes and resources. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. We hope you'll join us next week for an all-new episode.